Well, this morning we are kicking off a brand new sermon series that I am excited about. It's called Science of the Soul. And the reason that we're going to be talking about this for the next several weeks is because I think what has happened kind of over the course of society and culture is there was once a period of time where the utmost authority in life was uh, that of faith and belief. We derived kind of all of our understanding about ourselves, the world, and kind of our place in it, and that was informed by our faith. And then you could argue probably about 400 years ago, there became a shift where faith and belief was no longer the ultimate source of authority, but kind of at the dawning of kind of the Renaissance and the Age of Enlightenment, you start to see this shift towards empirical fact, um, science, what can be proven to be true. And so really, there was this movement away from some of the aspects of faith and belief that were less empirically provable towards this understanding of you can't measure it and test it and verify it through a double-blind survey or study, you can't trust it. And so what has happened is there has kind of been this unnecessary division between faith and science, or religion and science. Maybe for many of you, you've grown up trying to reconcile or navigate the gap or the tension between these two, what seems to be polar opposites. Well, I think they're unnecessarily opposed to each other. And over the course of the next several weeks, I'm going to show you uh, how they're actually, especially today in today's society and the science that we have available to us through neuroscience, so much of what modern learnings from neuroscience reveal to us actually affirm what people of faith have been living out and believing for 4,000 years. And so I think the intersection of science and faith is particularly interesting. Maybe it's just occupational hazard because I'm a pastor and I like this kind of stuff. So uh, either this will be highly uh, informative and helpful to you, or for the next several weeks, you're just indulging my curiosity. And so either way, I'm excited for the next four weeks together. Now, what we're going to be looking at is kind of the intersection of kind of modern learnings and neuroscience and kind of time-tested, age-old uh, Judeo-Christian practices and beliefs and the way that they actually work together and how one can inform the other and vice versa. And to start off, we're going to be looking at this aspect of interpersonal neuroscience or relational neuroscience. And it's this idea of an integrated mind that was first introduced uh, about 20 or so years ago by um, kind of a researcher named Dan Siegel. And Dan describes this concept. I'm going to read you his definition, and then I'm going to try to explain it because I didn't quite understand the definition at first. So this is what Dan says about the mind. He says, the mind is an embodied and relational process that regulates the flow of energy and information. The mind is an embodied and relational process that regulates the flow of energy and information. Now, ultimately, what Dan is communicating, and as you kind of read some of his work, what he is trying to communicate is that the mind is made up of not just the brain and our thoughts, but the mind is encompassing of our thoughts, our feelings, our memory, our emotions, our bodily sensations, and the way that that as an entire system works together in conjunction with and in relationship to other people in our life and their minds in integrated systems. And so really what you have is two components that work together in harmony that shape and reshape each other. 
you have the mind, all the things that you think, that you feel, all the sensations in your body, those impact and inform your relationships. I think we can all think of examples of the way that your emotion in a particular moment, your feeling at a particular time, or the things that you think impact your relationships in the way that your people and your relationship with, the way that their emotions, thoughts, feelings impact you. And so what Dan says is there are two components that inform each other. And the best way to move towards wholeness in your life is to move towards what Dan uses as a term of integration. That means that you are fully aware in all the parts of your mind, your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, your bodily sensations are integrated. They're brought back into harmony with one another. You're conscious and aware of them and the way your mind impacts your relationships, the way that your thoughts, feelings, emotions impact your relationships. And then the way that you bring your relationships into harmony with one another. So having good relationship with self, good relationship with others, and the way that those two things feed into each other. Now, perhaps you've had an experience when you have, maybe you've tried therapy and you've been describing a particularly difficult relationship and maybe a particular difficult moment in said relationship and you're starting to get worked up and you notice that your heart rate is getting faster and faster and faster and you're kind of starting to manifest a whole lot of thoughts, feelings, emotions. And maybe perhaps your therapist in this moment has said, hey, talk to me about what you're feeling right now. And you start to describe maybe emotion that you weren't aware of in that moment. And then perhaps your therapist has asked you, and where do you feel this in your body? What the therapist is doing is using learnings from interpersonal neuroscience to help you reintegrate your thoughts, your feelings, your bodily sensations, trying to bring those back into harmony. As you start to become aware of these things, you start to have a better understanding of the way that maybe certain patterns are playing out in your relationship that you're able to gain a little bit of distance from. And as you gain distance from, you're able to better control your response to those dynamics and patterns. You're able to control yourself a little bit more. And next time you find yourself in that situation, you seem to have a little more control or a little more awareness of what's happening. You're less triggered. You're less impacted by what's going on. At its best, this is kind of how this plays out. And Dan says that healing and wholeness is actually the way that you can integrate these two things. Now, what Dan is describing is this process of being known. You see, we have a difficulty in our culture and our society of understanding what it means to be known because we so prioritize knowledge and of knowing things we evaluate ourselves based on what things we know as are measured in school, which allows us to get into the next school where we can demonstrate further all of the things that we know so that we can then find jobs that reward us based on all of the things that we know and the application of that knowledge into the things that we can produce and do. Think about the ways that your relationships go. So much of our conflict is based on what you know to be true, what you know is the right way to do something in the way that the other person that you're in a relationship with doesn't know the right way to do it. And if they only knew the right way to do it, they would do it like you and there would be harmony in the relationship. Right? Maybe you had that experience on the drive over this morning. This is what happens. This is what happens. We prioritize knowing. And if the other people in our life could just know what we know, and then apply that knowledge the way that we know to apply it, everything would be better. 
or perhaps for you, it's not that the other people need to know what you know and apply it the way that you know to apply it, but there's something you don't know that you need to know, and so you're on this continual quest of self-improvement. And you're always trying to better and refine and optimize yourself because if you could know a little bit more, then you could get to a place where you were able to have better control over your life and your relationships because you have gained finally enough knowledge to apply to your situation and your circumstances that life would finally go well. Either way, we think and we pursue healing and wholeness, not through the integration of our mind and our relationships of being known, but we pursue it through knowing. And Dan says this is a mistake. What we have to do is we have to shift from knowing things to engaging in a process of being known. Perhaps you've had the experience in a relationship, whether it's a friendship or a romantic relationship, where you were going on and on and you were arguing, you were disagreeing about maybe some idea or some fact, what you did know or didn't know and how the other one needed to know that you know what you know that they don't know. And there starts to be this tension that rises. And then there's something that happens in the conversation where somebody shares how they're feeling or how what was said impacts them. And then the other person's actually able to gain a little bit of access and understanding of that person in a different way. And so instead of fighting about taking out the trash, you start to talk about the feelings behind taking out the trash. In every premarital session that I have with couples, I talk about this dynamic. Most of the stuff that we argue about, there's actually something behind it that we're actually arguing about. And the thing that we're actually arguing about is that we don't, see, we don't feel seen or known by the person we're in relationship with, or in that moment, we're scared that we're not being known and seen and heard, that's actually what's going on in our relationships. And so you have this moment, perhaps one of you steps forward in vulnerability and says, hey, I just gotta tell you how that's impacting me. And it changes the nature of the conversation because you're no longer talking about knowing things and the things that you know, but what's going on inside of you, you're starting to reintegrate your mind, your thoughts, your emotions, your feelings, your sensations in your body, saying, in this moment, I'm starting to feel like afraid that you don't care about me. And then the person's like, oh, that's, that's not what I was trying to do at all. I was just trying to get you to know what I know and apply what I know the way that I know to apply it. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean for you to feel this way. Let me try to explain or share a little bit about where I was coming from and what I was thinking and feeling or maybe kind of my history that I have brought into this dynamic or relationship in this moment. And you see how there starts to be this reintegration of things because there's a different understanding in that moment. And you're like, at the end of the conversation or argument, what started out as some disagreement about what you know, it shifted to a place of, gosh, I feel so close to you now. I feel seen. I feel understood. I feel known. And that, that feels good. That, that feels like healing in this relationship in some way or, or a movement towards wholeness. This is what's happening in kind of the application of interpersonal neuroscience. It's the way that we integrate our minds and our relationships and the ways that they inform one another together. But really this process of being known is something that is as old as faith. For thousands of years, the authors of scripture and Judeo-Christian followers have been engaging in this process of being known. And for us as people of faith, 
It doesn't start with kind of knowing within our minds or knowing within our relationships, but the ultimate kind of origination and way that we can move towards wholeness in our life is by being known by God. And this is kind of the process that happens as we explore being known by God and the way that this leads us to a place of wholeness and healing, kind of, I think, even in a greater way than interpersonal neuroscience can lead us. You know, I think the culmination of this is ultimately what we all long for in our lives. It's, uh, as the Apostle Paul puts it, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. I think that was nine if you were counting along with me, all of the nine fruits of the Spirit. But that's what we want in our lives, right? All of those adjectives, that's what a full, robust, whole life looks like. This is what Scripture calls like the abundant life or the eternal life, life overflowing with goodness. And while we don't have to discount or kind of do away with all of the learnings from kind of relational neuroscience, we can apply them and marry, marry them to kind of this basic Christian practice of knowing God and being known by God, more importantly. In the Psalms, you know, most of Scripture is kind of God's words or our interpretation of God's words to us, but the Psalms are different. The Psalms are our words back to God, and so they provide just a unique lens and context for us to examine the same difficulties, challenges, joys, failures, fears that people have been wrestling with for thousands of years. I think there's this false assumption that gets kind of peddled in modern-day Christianity where if you are just a person of faith, that's enough to make sure that everything in your life goes well. And that if something's not happening the way that you want it to in your life, it's because you just have to believe more or be a little bit more faithful. That's not what Scripture says at all. What Scripture reminds us of is not the promise that once we start to believe or if we can do enough right things in the right order and stand on one foot, you know, whatever it may be, that life will then finally be good. No, no, no. It says that in the midst of the hardship of life, the difficult moments, the lonely moments, the uncertain moments, in the moments where you feel like you're not doing it right, Scripture says God's present and God's with us and God is at work inside of us. And so the Psalms are a unique lens into the fact that for thousands of years, people of faith have been wrestling with the same relational issues and the same interpersonal dynamics and the same hopes, dreams, and fears that we find ourselves with today. So out of Psalm 139, hear these words. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? This is the attempt of the writer of this psalm to describe what it feels like to be known by God not just in moments in time, not just for an hour on Sunday mornings, but when I sit and when I rise, when I go out and when I lie down, that pretty much covers all of life. In all of life, God, you know me, 
and you have searched me. I have availed myself to kind of your inspection of me, Lord. And this process of being known by you has impact on us. And this is what the author describes next. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? There is beginning to be this sense of assurance of God's continual presence with the writer of this psalm. If I go up to the heights, you were there. If I, if I make my bed in the depths, you were there also. Even there, your hand will guide me, and your right hand will hold me fast. Heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. This is what the writer of the psalm is describing in different words than the Apostle Paul did in, in his letter to the Romans. What he's describing is that when you begin to allow yourself to be known by God, it starts to develop a sense of assurance and a sense of confidence and ultimately that of trust that God is with you. We live our lives with this perceived sense and need for control that we have to be the ones responsible for every aspect of our lives. And this sense of control begins to impact our relationships because we need to make sure that not only are we in control of our lives, but we are in control of the lives of the people who impact our lives. And because we have the need to be in control of our lives and the lives of the other people in our lives, we begin to attend to all of the little details and all of the little ways, and those become concerns and worries that lead to this low-grade anxiety that we all live with. And so to try to quiet the anxiety in our minds, we find ourselves moving faster and faster, hurrying more and more, becoming increasingly busier and busier until we just can't stand it anymore. And then we find some way to numb out through TV or substance or food or relationships because we just can't handle it anymore and I think that kind of the question we have to ask ourselves is this the kind of life that we want in 2023 is this the kind of year that you want caught in the same old cycle the same old patterns the same old ways of we trying to ensure kind of satisfaction quality of life on our own it's wearing us out it's wearing our people out. It's making us sick and tired and exhausted. And there is a better way. There is a way that leads to love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And it begins with being known by God. This is how the psalmist finishes this writing. He says, search me, God. And know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Anxiety is not a 21st century invention. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way to life eternal. There is a time tested Christian practice that allows us to begin to be known by God. It uses a couple of different names, but it is the combination of stillness, silence, and solitude. And some of you, these are the last three words you wanted to hear me say this morning, because the idea of stillness 
silence and solitude feels like death. Because everything in our lives is the exact opposite of stillness, silence, and solitude. This practice, though, is one that we see from the life of Jesus and we see from early practitioners of the faith, from kind of the Christian leaders, mothers and fathers throughout the centuries. It is one that we can rely on and trust that it works when we create space to go before God and to allow God to begin to know us. This is what it looks like. It means carving out time in your day. Even amidst all of the reasons why there's not time in your day, which are all valid, let me just affirm all of your reasons and objections as to why this can't happen for you in your particular season of life, they're all valid. And in spite of those things, it's carving out time. For some of you, maybe three minutes is all you got. Then do three minutes. Maybe it's five minutes. Maybe it's 10. Maybe it's 15. There's kind of this kind of tongue-in-cheek expression that if you don't have 15 minutes for prayer with God, then take 30. I think some of these things stick for a reason. But what it is is it's a process of carving out time that's uninterrupted and that's totally protected where you're alone away from other people in solitude you sit you kneel I would probably discourage you from lying especially if it's early in the morning and you interrupted sleep to begin this practice but sitting or kneeling and then it's silence and you're just listening and what I can promise you will happen When you begin to do this, when you make time in your schedule in your life, as you begin to start this practice of being quiet with God, of listening to his voice, is that it will feel terrible. It will make you uncomfortable. It will cause you to begin to come into contact with all of the things that you try to avoid thinking about, feeling, and experiencing on a day-to-day basis. I promise you. I'm selling it this morning, aren't I? (laughs) And also, in the words and the language of Dan Siegel, this is how you begin to reintegrate your mind, your thoughts, your emotions, your memories, the things that you run from that seem to be chasing you that keep you up at night. You start to be confronted with all of your demons and all of your addictions and all of the ways that we are hesitant to just be still and silent before God. But if you are consistent with this practice, if you keep showing up, even when it doesn't feel good, even when it feels like it isn't working, because trust me, it will feel like I'm still, I'm quiet, nothing's happening. All I can think about is all of the to-dos I have today, my grocery list, all of the errands I have to run, the meeting I have that I'm not prepared for, that I could be spending this time preparing for. Okay, God, I don't feel any different. Next. That'll happen. It might happen for days. It might happen for weeks. It might happen for months. But if you stick with it, if you carve out space, whether it's early in the morning or even in the shower or in your car before you get out to go to work or in your car before you get out to come inside the house at the end of the day or before you go to bed, no matter where you locate this in your day, If you make space to be still and silent before God, 
what will begin to happen is you will begin to experience, as this psalmist wrote, the sense of being known by God. God, here are all of the things that are happening. God, let me just listen to you. Let me begin to wrestle with the way that you are at work within me, pointing out all of the areas that I am struggling with, that I am fighting within myself, the relationships that I feel the need to attend to that maybe I have been ignoring. God, through all of the stuff and the junk that swirls around inside of me and in my brain, God, I just continue to show up before you and allow you to begin to work in it and to work through it and to know me. This is not magic. Nothing magical will happen when you do this. But it is formative, and there's a big difference. I think that's what is so often discouraging by the way that we portray some of these Christian practices is we think that they're magic. If you do them, then something totally spectacular will happen in your life immediately. My guess is for many of you, it rarely happens. But they are formative, and they're slow, which is kind of the antithesis of everything that we experience in this life and in our culture and age. They are slow, but they do form and they do shape and they do mold and they do begin to instill a sense of peace and a sense of assurance that even when you're at the mountaintops or even when you're in the valley, that God is present and that God is with you. One way to begin this is to just pick an amount of time to sit in silence If you need something to kind of anchor your mind around because it begins to wander, then you can use some of the language of this psalm. Just six words. Search me, know me, lead me. Search me. God, examine my heart and my mind. Know me. Begin to become totally familiar with all of the parts of me. And God, lead me. Lead me in the way to life eternal. Search me, know me, lead me. Search me, know me, lead me. And you can just say those over and over and over. Or you can sit in silence. This is what kind of author and writer Henry Nouwen says about solitude. He encompasses kind of all the components, stillness, silence, solitude, into this description of solitude. He says it this way. He says, without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. For Henry Nouwen and a whole lot of other Christian authors and leaders of the faith over centuries and millennia, this was a non-negotiable. This wasn't like a, hey, if you can fit it in, it would be nice. This was, hey, this is the foundation of a, a life with God. Is regular time in stillness, in silence, and in solitude with God. He says, we do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside time to be with God and to listen to him. We come to know, by doing this, we come to know, not only with our mind, but also with our heart, that we never were really alone. That God's spirit is with us all along. Ultimately, that feeling of aloneness is why being known is so powerful. That's the fear, that's the emotional charge that you experience in your relationships in the midst of argument and disagreement is because there's this sense of isolation and aloneness that you feel inside of you. 
And that's why being known, being heard, being seen, being listened to feels so good. Because in that moment, it feels like you are not alone. The danger with just trying to make this change happen in our relationships apart from God is because ultimately it places our trust in other people. I'm not saying that you can't trust other people, but it's not enough to only trust other people. And so this is where spirituality is married with kind of the best of current neuroscience. It's when you begin to trust God first that you begin to allow yourself to be known by God, which then allows you the confidence and the security and the foundation to begin to be known by others. And that does lead to a life of healing and wholeness. So friends, this is my challenge to us as we start this new year, that we would take very seriously this practice of stillness, silence, and solitude and allow ourselves to begin to learn what it feels like and what it looks like and what it means to be known by God. Let me pray for our time and that this would be so in our lives. Gracious God, as we come before you, God, we ask that you begin to do work within us. God, that you begin to form and to shape and to mold us from the inside out, God. God, that we would allow you to see all of us, that we would allow you to search us, even in the places that we don't want to bring into the light, even in the places that we are ashamed of, that we feel guilty for, and that we try to hide. God, search every aspect of us. Know us fully and truly so that we can have a sense of peace and assurance and trust that no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, God, that you're with us. And God, that sense of knowing that you are with us helps us to avoid ever feeling alone. So God, do this work from the inside out. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.